Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In three, two, one... Seven things you don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Jamie East, and this, this is the Sunday Sun. On today's episode, engineers are harnessing the power of plants for clean energy, languages around the world are under threat from climate change, and healthy, luxurious chocolate could soon be on the horizon. But first, it was on this day in 1939, the uranium atom was split for the first time at Columbia University in New York City. The achievement began the Manhattan Project, leading to the construction of the atom bomb. New research from the United States has found that an astonishing one in eight cases of asthma in children could be linked to the use of gas stoves. In 2020, 38% of American households had natural gas cooking appliances, but in some states like California, that number could be as high as 70%. Whilst here in the UK and Ireland, the use of electric stoves is more common, these statistics are still alarming. Researchers repeatedly found the emission of toxic chemicals and carcinogens from gas stoves, even when they're turned off, creates indoor pollution that can be several times worse than the pollution experienced outdoors from car traffic and heavy industry. As Dr. Aaron Bernstein from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health explains, These are oxides of nitrogen, or NOx, that get released into our homes when we use gas to cook. And NOx are well known to contribute to asthma. Ashita Kapoor is the Associate Director of Product Safety at independent non-profit Consumer Reports, and she also agrees that certain pollutants in natural gas are a serious cause for concern. Nitrogen dioxide is a concern because we know that it does have adverse effects on respiratory tract, respiratory illnesses, especially for sensitive individuals such as children who could have asthma, as well as elderly people who also suffer from asthma. Since this latest piece of research was released, the possibility of banning new gas stoves was raised by a commissioner at the US Consumer Product Safety Commission. Whilst they later backtracked on the regularity suggestion, there are still steps that concerned parents can take. The question is, what's the first best actionable thing we can do? And that is to make sure that we use hoods, we use ventilation. If we don't have those installed, can we at least try and open a window? the world races to define carbon-free energy sources, scientists in Switzerland say they've developed a small leaf-like device that could provide a long-term solution to the issues of renewable energy storage. Inspired by the natural process of photosynthesis, this artificial leaf can create hydrogen fuel out of sunshine and thin air. This is Professor Kevin Sivula, a chemical engineer at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, Lausanne. We've invented a device that can take water from humid air and sunlight and convert it into hydrogen, which can be used as a fuel or a chemical feedstock for a future energy system based fully on renewable energy. This is really important because there's 
really a lot of sunlight available, but the sun doesn't shine all of the time. So we need a way to store the sunlight uh, for future use. And using sunlight to split water into hydrogen and oxygen, storing the sunlight in the form of hydrogen is a leading method to do this. Although artificial photosynthesis has been demonstrated before, this novel technology solves two previous problems, harvesting the water from the air and powering the chemical reaction with sunlight. In the future, if we're successful to find a system with a high enough solar to hydrogen conversion efficiency and good enough stability, we can imagine these artificial leaf-based systems, both in arid environments like the desert, where there's not a lot of liquid water, but also in more humid environments like the Lake Geneva. Still to come on the Sunday 7, how climate change could be the final nail in the coffin for thousands of languages and the feathered flock keeping a South African vineyard pest-free. Linguists around the world have sounded alarm bells over what's being described as catastrophic loss of languages. Every 40 days a language dies, and according to recent UNESCO research, we could lose half of the world's total languages by the end of the century. These are alarming statistics. To get a better understanding of why this is happening and what it means, we caught up with linguistic anthropologist Ana Luisa Daigno. Hey Ana Luisa, thanks for joining us. So, so we're talking about the future of the world's languages. What does it mean for a language to die? And what are some of the steps that lead to it happening? When a language goes extinct, it means that there are no speakers left who speak that language. So it happens when there are no children learning and growing up speaking the language. So it's a often a gradual process that, that happens over a couple of generations, or it can happen quite fast as well. Um, so basically there are speakers who are getting older and older and then they pass on and the language is not transmitted to the younger generations and eventually knowledge of the language and all the information it encodes disappears. UNESCO research claims that by 2100 at least half of the world's 7,000 languages could go extinct due to climate change amongst other reasons. How do you see the pattern of language loss interplay with patterns of the climate catastrophe? There are factors related to globalization, colonization, assimilation, pollution, displacement, migration, all of those factors are interconnected. Um, and then when you add to that the climate catastrophe that's ongoing, you get added pressures to the situation. Are certain areas in the world more vulnerable? Some of the areas that are more vulnerable to language loss um, are those where there are very few speakers left and very little support for the communities that speak these languages and a lot of pressure for them to, to migrate away or assimilate to the larger cultures. So almost in every country around the world, we see places like that. Some of the areas that are most vulnerable to language loss um, are areas that have a lot of ecological pressures on them uh, and social and political pressures and areas where there are very few speakers left of these languages. There's been very little documentation of these languages and very little support for those languages. My experience is mostly in Latin America and especially in South America, we see a lot of ecological impacts in the Amazon related to deforestation and to wildfires just in the last uh, few decades. So the communities that rely on the forest to survive are really under a lot of pressure to find new strategies 
So a lot of the Amazonian indigenous communities are really at the front lines of climate change and of deforestation and uh, wildfires. It's important for people to understand that the loss of languages is happening hand in hand with the loss of biodiversity around the world. So we really would like people to pay attention to the biodiversity around them and then think about how endangered languages might express and capture and encode the information about biodiversity. And that's the work that we're doing at Living Tongues. And that's what we encounter every single day building dictionaries. We find such rich and beautiful information encoded in these languages about biodiversity. And um, we really want to bring awareness to that topic. For the majority of our listeners, English is likely to be the first and only language. Why should the general public care about the loss of languages? I know that sounds silly. You could put yourself in a situation where you might wonder what would happen if English was banned or replaced by another language. How would you feel and how would you feel about the lost artworks and literature and knowledge that's transmitted through English? Um, so that's one way where you could realize the, the ramifications of what's going on. But really the most important thing is that if we care about minority communities and if we care about indigenous communities um, and their livelihoods and their identity, then we should really care about languages as well. Well, now that we're in this trepidous position, what can we do to preserve and resurrect these languages? So at Living Tongues Institute for Endangered Languages, we really like to frame the issue as we're protecting linguistic diversity. We don't want people to get depressed about the situation and just throw up their hands and just, you know, think that it's um, that it's a done deal that these languages are going away. Um, we really want to empower people to see that we can revitalize, for example, the original indigenous languages uh, of the lands that we occupy. So we could do that by valuing place names. We could do that by empowering communities and really supporting and allocating budgets to language revitalization. Uh, as for our day-to-day -day at Living Tongues, we work with really amazing language activists around the world and we help them document their languages by creating dictionaries and books um, and other digital resources that can help them in the long term. So uh, we really have a lot of hope and optimism for making a difference for some of the communities we work with. munching ducks are the latest hires at a vineyard in South Africa's winemaking town of Stellenbosch. The army of around 500 Indian runner ducks has a taste for snails, making them valuable employees if you want to keep your vines pest-free. The feathered flock dutifully patrol the grape lines at the Wegener Low Wine Estate, helping the owners steer clear of pesticides and synthetic fertilizers. Call in the soldiers of the vineyards. And this breed's especially suited to the job. That's according to the managing director of the estate, Corius Visser. They don't waddle like normal ducks. They walk. They are, they've got an upright um, posture and their long necks actually helps them to eat the snails within the vineyards itself. When it's up there in between the leaves, they can reach that and they can eat them there. As well as natural pest control, the ducks also provide entertainment for local tourists. It's amazing how they behave themselves, walk in the row, and it's like they're in the army or whatever, <laughs> yeah, no. 
According to Vista, Indian runner ducks are a fantastic choice for the job. They're very trainable and can easily slip into a daily routine. They start their day out in the vineyards and make their way back to the paddocks each evening where they get additional bird food. And after a day of feasting in the vineyard, there's one more benefit. Their nutrient-rich manure makes great fertilizer, just another way to keep the estate as sustainable as possible. Still to come on the Sunday 7, an oil giant's secret research into climate change is finally revealed and a GP's advice on what to do about that pesky lingering cough. Right after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're listening to the Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso or even try our island edition. It's in all the usual places. There's been an unexpected twist in the field of climate science. New research suggests that one of the world's largest oil companies, ExxonMobil, predicted global warming. With research starting in the late 70s, ExxonMobil scientists made remarkably accurate projections of just how much burning fossil fuels would warm the planet. This is based on a new study from scientists from Harvard University and the University of Potsdam. They say Exxon's own experts produced models on warming that were more accurate than even NASA's projections, yet still waged a decades-long campaign to discredit the science on climate change and its connection to the burning of fossil fuels. What? Stefan Ramstorff is one of the study's co-authors from the Potsdam Institute of Climate Change and joined BBC News to break down their report. These uh, papers by Exxon, they have been in the public domain for for a number of years uh, brought there by journalists and uh, my Harvard colleagues who are uh, science historians have already done an analysis and published it some years ago on the verbal statements in these papers and what we have done now is to look quantitatively at the projections by climate models uh, that were presented by Exxon and they got it pretty well exactly right predicting the world would warm by about 0.2 degrees per decade before any warming uh, was even observed. As part of their investigation, Ramstorff and his colleagues retroactively traced what Exxon did with the forecasts coming from their own internal research department. Our paper details some quotes by Exxon executives, which were clearly designed to cast doubt on climate science and make the whole issue appear uh, not urgent and highly uncertain, even though uh, they knew what was happening just as much as uh, other academic scientists, for example, predicted correctly the global warming that was coming. While obviously Exxon today categorically rejects the idea of covering up or the notion that they even knew for decades that burning fossil fuels was going to be damaging the planet, Ramstorff and his colleagues aren't convinced. We know that their scientists presented to the Exxon leadership these results and uh, they, these results, they came with uncertainty margins and uh, it was very clear that there would be a significant warming there and there's no way these modeling results uh, 
could suggest that there, there is a possibility of no warming. These companies make many statements of how they are part of the solutions, but uh, there are other scientists, not, not within our research, but people that have looked at where they actually put their money, and it's uh, not always uh, what their words are saying. So I would really love them to be part of the solution, but I need to be, I remain to be convinced uh, that they really are working towards that. persistent cough for the last few weeks. I know I have. It's driven me mad. Maybe it was that cold you had a while back, or perhaps even the flu. Well, according to the Royal College of GPs, these pesky coughs could be lasting longer this year because people are picking up one infection after another. Dr Helen Wall had this advice on BBC Breakfast. There's lots of speculation about, isn't there, about, you know, whether these coughs are lasting longer or whether it's, a you know, recurring infections. I don't think anybody really knows, but, you know, it certainly seems possible that it, we're picking up one after the other. And this could be down to the time we've spent lockdown and masked up. I think if we look at the science behind it, it's a possibility that we've just lost our resilience to infections because whenever we are out and about doing our normal day-to-day -day business, our immunity is constantly running that script in the background, meeting bacteria, meeting viruses. You might not even realise that, you might not even be ill with it, but it's constantly building that resilience and that ability to fight off infection and perhaps some of us have lost that because we weren't mixing as much as we were. But Dr Wall's cautious to put all persistent coughs in this category. I think the thing for me is that I, I do worry that because of all the coughs going about and people saying you know you're just picking up a cough after a cough I think we have to be really careful that we don't miss people who have a cough for another reason so you know if you've got a persistent cough that's going on and on it could be that you're just picking up recurrent infections it could be that you've got one that's lasting a long time it could also be particularly if you've not had the infection symptoms like fever um, and being unwell and snotty with it it could be that there's something underlying that so you might want to get some medical advice so you might need a chest x-ray Why do we love chocolate? Is it because it tastes good? Mmm, delicious. Or is it because it feels good? This is so smooth. Researchers from the University of Leeds have found that chocolate feels good to eat because of its texture. They found that when we eat chocolate, the surface of the treat releases a fatty film that makes it feel smooth. But these researchers claim fat deeper inside the chocolate plays a more limited role. This means the amount of fat could be reduced without the feel or sensation of chocolate being affected. Dr. Siavas Sultanamadi led the study and told the BBC their research opens the possibility that manufacturers can intelligently design dark chocolate to reduce the overall fat content. This means a low-fat, healthier chocolate could one day be made that still gives the same pleasure as the naughty stuff. Tasty, guilt-free chocolate. It's on the horizon. Hallelujah! This has been the Sunday 7. Wherever you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7. Have a great rest of your weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Doris. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.